Once again, I'd like to welcome everybody to this retreat. Welcome to St. Herman Church. It's really nice to have people with us um, from all the different churches in Anchorage and in the Valley, and even some visitors as far as Homer. Um, Archimand Abbot Archimandrite Sergius was originally from California. Yeah, right? yeah. But spent a lot of time in Utah, I found. I did. Growing up. Yeah. Um, he's a convert to Holy Orthodoxy and um, started out in the monastery of St. John of San Francisco under Abbot Jonah yeah. um, before going to St. Tikhon Monastery and Seminary in 2000. He graduated with the Masters of Divinity in 2003, right? Uh, five, actually. 2005. Yeah. Um, and he has spent many years at the seminary teaching music spirituality. He spent time as an interim dean, even in 2013 and 2014. Um, and he was elected by the Brotherhood and installed as the 16th abbot of St. Tikhon's Monastery uh, on January 23rd of 2010. And before that, the monastery had been without an abbot in-house for many, many years. Um, Father Sergius has written a book called Acquiring the Mind of Christ. He has contributed um, to Orthodox music in America through his Orthodox two-part music project, which is on the St. Tikhon's Monastery website. And, um, and really, uh, personally, for me, he holds a special place in my heart because when I was at seminary my first year, I went to confession to another monk, to Father Gabriel, who, um, it must have been me because he left the monastery after that year <laughs> and decided he wanted to go take a parish in Nebraska. I don't know the details. He was gone for our second year, and so I needed to find a father confessor, and I went to the, the newly elected abbot and asked if he would hear my confession. And during that year, he basically asked me, do you want to get serious and grow up? Or do you just want to keep messing around and wasting everybody's time? Did I say that? Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> it, was, wow. it was a turning point. Wow. It was a turning point wow. where I realized that I was more of the problem than, than I realized. And it wasn't everybody else or everything else. It was me. One common denominator to all my problems. So he really helped me grow up in that year. Then Father Gabriel came back for my third year, and I returned to the safety and comfort of <laughs> <laughs> but Father Gabriel. Was the kindest. He's the kindest, <laughs> kindest monk. Um, but I'm very thankful for that time, for that year that I had with you as my as my father confessor. So, um, as I said, I invited Father Sergius in 2015 to come up. He got really sick in 2017 before the retreat was scheduled and had to cancel. So we rescheduled for 2020. Oops. <laughs> and by God's timing and providence, like he's here now, and I think it's just wonderful and perfect. Um, so without any further ado, Father Sergius, thank you Thanks so much for being with us. Christ is risen. He is risen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Christ is risen. He is risen.
Christos vos Christi. Christos Anesti. My name is uh, Father Archimand Wright Sergis. I'm the abbot of St. Tikhon's Monastery. St. Tikhon's Monastery was founded by St. Tikhon of Moscow in 1905. Five canonized saints have lived, walked, taught, and been at St. Tikhon's Monastery. Uh, since about 1937, 1938, we've had a seminary, so it was a little bit later on in the development of our, um, you know, uh, grounds there, our place there, our holy habitation. But St. Raphael came to consecrate the altar in 1905. He was a uh, sent by St. Tikhon of Moscow. St. Tikhon of Moscow actually, he paid for half of the monastery when he bought it. So he literally bought the farm. It was $2,000 and he paid uh, for the Wagner farm and he paid for half of it so that, that the monks could uh, establish a place there under Archbishop Arseni. So, uh, and then St. Nikolai Zicha, he was our, one of our rectors. He was a great Serbian statesman, poet, uh, philosopher, scholar. Uh, indeed, just showing in himself, you know, like the, sometimes people think that there's some kind of um, fight against faith and, and, and knowledge or somehow like faith and academic work. But St. Nikolai was this perfect person who, who brought not only the life of faith and spiritual life, but also great academic uh, capacity and acuity uh, in his own person. So he had actually four doctorates. Which is very difficult. You know, one PhD is a lot of work. So he had four. He single-handedly uh, saved uh, the Serbian people from uh, in in World War One, I, I think it was, because he preached on the steps in England. He was out at one of the major cathedrals, telling people about what was actually going on in the Balkans at that time. Because you know, it was difficult. You didn't always have news, and think people didn't really know what was happening sometimes. So he actually went to England and tried to to rally support for. Um, World War One, and was single-handed in his in his capacity to actually like get people to listen because he was a great orator. So he's our rector. He passed away in 1956. Saint Alexis of Wilkesbury. He was um, one of uh, kind of the founding members of the monastery uh, in the community, the larger community. It was actually he, through his work, he brought in about 13,000 people into the Orthodox Church in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And from him, his converts and their descendants, it was 400,000 people that came into the Orthodox Church. So St. Tigon of Moscow actually said he was, he believed him to be the father of the church in America because he brought so many people to the Orthodox faith. And then St. Alexander Hodovitsky, he was the, the one who wrote the monastery history. He was later martyred under the Bolsheviks in about 1937. So these are our five saints at the monastery. St. Tigon of Moscow, you know, all these saints, they give us a really good direction about how to live our lives today in our modern world because so often you know we might look at some of the third or fourth century fathers and think oh my gosh you know how am I going to keep vigil all night or how am I going to fast like I can't do all of that, that stuff and those are not really for me however the the modern saints they show us the contemporary witness about how to live our Christian life today and Saint Sophronia actually says Saint Sophronia's kind of um, the main line of thought at the monastery uh, through Father Zacharias. Father Zacharias, unworthy though I am, I'm his uh, spiritual son. Um, and he'll actually be coming at Memorial Day, if anybody wants to know. Uh, he's a great elder, God-seer, uh, truly a great light and luminary in the world. He's the heir of St. Sophroni, who is the heir of St. Silouan. So St. Silouan, St. Sophroni, and then Father Zacharias, um, they are the ones who kind of carry this 
contemporary witness, this contemporary voice about how to live a Christian life in a modern world. So St. Silva, if you want to know anybody, he's like, what, did I, what, what should I read that would be the most um, clear teaching about how to simply live an Orthodox life in this modern world? No fluff, no commercial, no, no uh, political bias, nothing at all except pure gospel in a contemporary form. St. Siloan, that second part of Father uh, St. Sophroni's book, it's kind of a big book, the second part of that book is the writings of St. Siloan. That's what you want to read. That is so clear. It's so perfect. It's, so, it's like crystal clear water. Gospel coming down from the mountain top all the way down to us today. It's that same water. It comes all the way down through the mountain. And it's in St. Siloan in the most clear and kind of uh, distilled and crystallized form. And then it goes on to St. Sophroni who continues to elucidate that. And Father Zacharias. So... But St. Sophroni says that we're not going to be judged at the, at the second coming by all the other people, all the other saints that have ever lived. The fathers of the 4th century, like St. John Chrysostom or St. Basil, there won't be the, the person that's standing next to you at the second coming. Because it's not really fair. They're not, a, they're not linked to our time period. They don't have uh, the same mm, circumstances that we do. Of course, the gospel can be lived and, and worked out, and we have those great ascetics even in our modern day. However, he says that the people that we'll be standing next to that will be kind of the litmus test for our lives are, are the contemporary saints of our time. And those five canonized saints from St. Econ's monastery show in different ways through their own person, their own lives, how to live a Christian life today. St. Econ of Moscow, uh, he, was, he came to America in about 1897. Uh, he was a bishop of, uh, it was, they moved the, the bishopric from Alaska to San Francisco around that time or a little before, and then he moved it to New York City because New York was clearly the, the epicenter of kind of the American phenomenon and eventually got moved to Washington, D.C. for the OCA. But so he moved it to New York City, and he lived so simply and humbly. Uh, he, when he came to the monastery, he actually stayed there in 1905 for about three months during the summertime. And he, he really liked to swim in the pond. He really liked to help with the bees. And he insisted that the cook not take the potato skins off of his potatoes. He wanted to eat potatoes like all the other fathers and brothers. No special treatment. That, in that time, I guess I was, I liked the skins on. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, I think it was like kind of a more high society thing to have your potato skins off. You know, it was, you know, more, uh, I don't know. Anyways, you get the idea. So... But this humility that he exemplified, you know, the name Tikhon literally means quiet, humble. Hi, Father Tikhon. <laughs> Father Timothy. Think of you, it's like your son Tikhon. It's like that, that word itself, it's like, uh, it's, it's in itself, it's, it means humility or humble. So this humble, you know, they, that, that, that song, Oh Gladsome Light, uh, it's actually like, it's the root word of it in Slavonic is Tikhon. Uh, Sviati Tiki. So humble, quiet light. Um, that's the light of Christ. That's the light of Christ. It's a humble, quiet, gentle light. Oh, gladsome, oh, gentle light. So St. Tikhon of Moscow, after he was uh, founded St. Tikhon's monastery, he actually had to go back to Russia in 1907. He went back. He was elected <clears throat> the first patriarch in 200 years in 1917, as the bombs were going off outside of the Kremlin and as chaos was erupting, it looked like the second coming for all intents and purposes at that time. And here is somebody in the midst of the church who was chosen to lead the church at that time. How did he do it? 
How did he bear the weight of 200, well, it's about probably 100 and something million people, all their souls on his back during the most terrible time that we've probably seen in the modern age of, of absolute kind of catastrophe for the church? I mean, I don't need to go into the details of how difficult that time was. But that humility was what enabled him to bear all of that difficulty. Just being able to say basically and in word, okay, to God and okay to the situation. It's a very, um, you know, I was talking about this in spiritual, spirituality because I teach spirituality at the, at, the, at, the monast- at the seminary. And there's basically like a few words that you can kind of summarize orthodox spiritual life in, and one of them is okay. Just being able to say okay to people, not fight, not kind of demand, not command, not insist. Okay. Somebody says, hey, why are you doing that? Okay. Life happens and you lose your job. Okay. Some terrible situation happens in the family. Okay. Your friend is, is, is insisting on his way. Okay. And it's not a place of weakness. It's a place of strength. We're not doing it in a sense of like we're caving. We're actually being strong in that moment and deciding for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the gospel of peace, we're allowing it and saying okay. So it comes from a place of strength. And really it's a yes. And our whole life ultimately needs to be a yes to God. So that each time I come to a difficulty in, in my life, say, well, how could God be sending me this? Is this really from God? The struggles and all the temptations, all the crosses that, that, we, that we have in our lives, everybody in this room has a cross. A specifically tailored cross. St. Innocent talks about this, how he says that Everybody gets a cross. Some are glass, some are metal, some are wooden, some are gold, some are made of stone. Everybody has a very special, specific cross that you've been given, person next to you and you yourself, that you hide inside of you as the one thing that you don't really like about yourself or about your life or about how it went or about how it is. And it's through that cross that the mystery of our salvation will be worked in our own lives as we accept it and say yes to it. And go through it rather than just kind of dance around it, complain about it, be upset about it, not be at peace with it. It doesn't mean that the the difficulty that we have is something that we have to just uh, kind of lie down in front of and not do anything about. It's precisely through that difficulty that we can grow. It's precisely through the trial or the tribulation or, or the struggle that we actually find resurrection. So every cross in our life is, is ultimately an opportunity for resurrection. It's not some kind of end point. We all have them. Some of them are terrible. And for that, I'm very sorry on behalf of God and the entire community of the world. <laughs> but we all have them. The injustice... The, the pain, the abuse, the difficulty, the sorrow, the suffering, the loss, right? This world is a world of loss. But in the end of the day, the only thing that really makes sense in our lives, you know, because I have run the cemetery at St. Tegon's for a lot of years, and we bury a lot of people. I buried a lot of my friends, a lot of my family, a lot of my co-workers, co-laborers. And at the end of the day, the only thing that makes sense in the cemetery is that cross that's above their grave on all levels of life. Not just at the end, but even in the middle. St. Maximus has a quote somewhere, he says, everything in creation needs a cross. 
which means a resurrection. It, means, it needs to go through some kind of change for it to kind of grow and somehow be sanctified and, and go unto God, to become Godward rather than just kind of fallen and deathward. So this movement of resurrection in our life is through our cross. And us being able to say yes to that cross, no matter what it is, is the main way that we start to grow and that we become like Christ and that that yes to God is ultimately our salvation. It's not unto death, it's unto life. It just has to have Christ in the center. It's not about me. It's about Christ being first in my life and me living a deeply kind of gospel-centered life, which is something that is not something that's easy. I'll be the first one to, to stand up here and say that's hard. And I don't really like it a lot of times. It's something that's painful and difficult, and, and that cross is something that we have to carry even in, since in the gospel. Pick up your cross daily. Oh... I mean, we can't put, it, can't put it down for a while and take a little break. Maybe we go to Hawaii, like we were talking about yesterday. I know there's a mission in Hawaii and Kona, right? Yeah. Yep. Sounds like a good place to stop and take a breath. <laughs> you know, get some good coffee. <laughs> but our entire life, as, you know, Father Zacharias has this quote. He says, our entire life is, 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 is a opportunity for us, he says, and this is not morbid at all, but to learn how to die. So that when we die, we don't die. And these little deaths that we experience are the difficulties of our life. The trials, the tribulations, the crosses that we all undergo and actually uh, encounter. Every one of those is an opportunity for us to choose faith. To choose love. To choose God. So we come up against something that seems mildly insurmountable. Some kind of loss. Maybe we, maybe we lost somebody. Maybe we're sick. We have some kind of chronic illness. Maybe uh, our church it got somehow messed up or something like that. And there's some division in there, some kind of scandal or whatever. Here's this opportunity for us to choose faith. For us to be a Christian. For us to make the choice for Christ rather than just devolve in, back into self. Because you find in the Fathers, you know, St. Maximus says this, and I find this in my own life, the one major problem about all of the passions, you know, there's like some kind of, <clears throat> it's like kind of a, you know, you know what the passions are, right? It's like there's virtues and there's passions, right? So the passions are all the things that, 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 that lead us to corruption. Pride, egotism, jealousy, envy, lust, all these things, you know. And St. Isaac talks about this, how he says, when he talks about when he says in St. John's uh, epistle, he says, love not the world. And some people tend to equate that as if it were talking about the created world. When St. Isaac says it, and St. John also says it as well, St. Isaac says this, he says that when I say the world, I mean the passions. And St. John the theologian actually says that in his epistle. He says, love not the world. That is to say, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. So he qualifies it. He doesn't just say like, he's not talking about the created world. He's talking about the things that actually destroy and corrupt the creation. So it's very important for us to make that the theological distinction because without that, we start um, sometimes hating ourselves. But we have to be able to make that distinction that we were created good. Everything in this world is good. You know, the, the material stuff of this world is good. And... The icon is kind of like an opportunity for us to, to, to have a different lens of how to look at the world in a way that's unto God, in a way that's Eucharistic, in a way that's renewed and sanctified and ultimately through which we find God. 
So the icon is actually like when we talk about icons, this is a, this is a whole worldview. This is a whole perspective. We had icons iconoclasm in the 7th and 8th century where they were uh, people that were for icons and against icons. Iconoduels and iconoclasts. And what were they really defending? They were just defending the fact that the church likes art. Although it's nice art. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's unique. It's different. Um... It's very kind of uh, specified, you know, this, the whole style of iconography actually came <coughs> in part of, it was a whole thought process in the Roman and Greek world that enabled them in their time to distill someone into their hypothesis and present it in pictorial form. So what is this a, 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 a depiction of? It's a depiction of someone's hypothesis or their, their inner part. Like that inner part of us is what's trying to be conveyed in an icon. If you can see this in some Roman art, where when you look at some art from maybe some uh, famous person or like a rich person in like the 46 uh, BC or something, it looks like this. It looks iconographic. It has this iconographic form because what they were trying to do was they were trying to kind of present the innermost kernel of the person themselves. Their inner hypothesis. It's in the word in Greek, it just means that for us in English, person. Person. So what were they defending? These iconodules are the people who were ardent defenders, and most of them were monastics or priests or bishops, you know. They were very uh, spiritual people. But what they saw was something more than art. It was a whole worldview that they were trying to defend about how to look at the creation and the renewal of creation and through which God through this world meets us today. That in our own lives, God meets us. That in the church, there is a renewal of the created world. Not just some spiritual idea about being saved, but really the actual prelude to the second coming. There's an interesting story in, in uh, Chicago. Um, we'll get back to the world in just a second. Um, and St. Isaac and so forth. But in, the, uh, in Chicago, in Cicero, this is a miracle working icon, by the way. I, the only thing I can say for sure that I know, this is a miracle working icon. I can't tell you how, I can't tell you why, I just know that it is. Um, and there's a tremendous amount of grace that, that comes with this icon sometimes. It's almost possible. Um, and so often there's, uh, you know, the miracles that, that happen because of uh, people's uh, prayers to St. Anna through this icon. Anyways, there was an icon in Cicero. It was at the, the Antiochian Church in Illinois. Yeah, if I can interrupt you yeah. for just a moment. Mm -hmm. Just during Lent, one of my friend is the pastor there, and yeah. he sent me some oil. Did it start um, weeping again? Uh, I... I I'm not sure if it's currently weeping, but... Mm -hmm. But it started weeping at some point. Yeah. Okay. It, it started weeping in the early 90s, I think. Yeah. It continued for yeah. a very long time. So we just sent some oil and a copy of the icon. We mm. have the copy here in the church, and I'm working on framing it. So, so here's the backstory, though. Okay. So we're talking about the prelude to the second coming, right? A lot of these icons, uh, for whatever reason, um, become mildly indestructible. 
there's a lot of times where people either try to rob them or destroy them or, or, or with the people that, that are the, the caregivers of them, sometimes uh, they, they get you know saved in different ways, like in World War II when the Kirschgrud icon was in certain buildings, all the bombs would fall on every single building and everything would be destroyed except that house or that room where the Kirschgrud icon was. So, and that happened with the uh, Tikvin icon too because Father Hillary, who was at the monastery, he was Archbishop John Kalenic, and the Tikvin icon is this very large, very old icon. And when Archbishop John was leaving Latvia in World War II, like smuggling this icon out of, out of Russia through Latvia, um, they were on this boat leaving the harbor and every, all the bombs were falling on the city as they're leaving. And all these bombs, Archbishop John swore, they said he were coming down right onto the boat and they go like this. They were just like, and the boat like just left, the entire city was destroyed and this boat leaves with this, this icon. This icon's like, I don't know, at least 1,500 years old. They re, it's reputed to be from St. Luke. But, um, you know, we're, we're not exactly positive. Anyway, so in Cicero, there's an icon on, on the iconostas at Cicero Church, which is in Chicago, near Chicago, and uh, it started weeping. It started weeping. It was caused quite a media stir. They brought the, the cameras in. It was quite something, but it only lasted maybe, I don't know, about maybe a, two months, three months, or something like that. And so after it stopped weeping, uh, the church had a fire, and the entire church burned to the ground 100%. The blaze was a four-alarm fire. They tried to put it out in the middle of the night. They couldn't do it. And when they came in the morning, it was just total decimation, complete rubble, smoke, and you know the steam coming up uh, from the ground. And they go into the as the sun comes up. What do you suppose is still there in the entire church being leveled? And there is still the icon of the Mother of God, completely intact. Amen. And only just a slight bit of smoke damage, just a bit. And you can still see it today because they put that icon back into the iconostas in the church. This incorruptibility is also shown in the saints. St. John Maximovich, everybody knows who that is, right? He's incorrupt. His body doesn't decay. He's got fingernails and hair and, uh, you know, everything's completely intact on him. And his miracle-working relics are in San Francisco. You can go venerate them, and they are phenomenal. They are a source of incredible life and light and power. He, of course, you know, him and a few of the other saints uh, of the modern time, they serve liturgy every day, which is a tough order, you know. I can barely go to liturgy every day, let alone serve liturgy every day. That would be very difficult. But these people took the Eucharist so much that they became incorrupt. They became so united to life, so united to grace, so united to the incorruptible kingdom of God that their relics, even after they passed away, they're still completely intact. And this phenomenon is, is actually normal in, in Orthodox Christianity. I, vis I visited Corfu, and St. Spiridon from the 3rd century is incorrupt. And not only that, they have to change his shoes every month because they get dirty because he goes outside and does things. His shoes get worn out. We don't know where he goes, but he's helping. He's doing things. He's busy. I don't know. The fact is, it's true. It's true. I remember I was in Italy. I was at St. Nicholas, uh, visiting St. Nicholas's relics. If you ever get a chance to go visit a saint's relics, like their whole body, 
you get a connection to that saint like you've never had before, and they're always with you in some way in your heart. You can always call upon them. You can always reach out to them. It's like having a phone booth that's established somehow, like that line is connected to those people. And I always talk to St. Nicholas now, and he does great things. He does amazing things. Remember when he got the at the monastery, I tell the story about the power being turned on? Um, Anyways, I was in Italy. I was visiting St. Nicholas. And then they had this other church there. And, and we wanted to go see, uh, I don't know, something there. And we went downstairs. And there, downstairs in the crypt chapel, there's like some lady with an umbrella. And I thought she was sitting there on, on the bench. Um, she seemed like she was at an elevated position, maybe like up above, about like where that heater is. And I kind of walked by out of the corner of my eye. We were looking at some other things. And I see this lady. She's got an umbrella. She's wearing a dress. She looks right, very nice. You have this sense like somebody is there and that you're just, you know, kind of being careful. You don't want to disturb this person. I go around the outside and then come back around. And I see her. She's a second century martyr who's in corrupt and her head was cut off. And they put it back on. And she's just sitting there. At the monastery? No, it's, this is in Italy. Yeah, at, in Bari. Yeah, and there she is, incorrupt, completely incorrupt. She looks great. And she's just sitting there with her umbrella. I think she's waiting for the second coming. This is the mystery of our faith, that it's somehow through our body that we are saved. This is the message of orthodoxy. And what is the world if not our body? And what is our body if not matter, the matter of this world? We eat stuff all the time. It becomes us. Everything that you eat, you know, they say, well, you are what you eat. All of that stuff that is from the world comes into us and becomes part of us. I often think that, you know, at the, at the Ascension, right, whatever Christ ate at the, at the, second, at the, uh, at the Last Supper, right, he, just, he went up, you know, he probably had some hummus or something, olives, wine, all these things that he ate the night before the crucifixion, right? It's like all of that went up into heaven and sat at the right hand of the Father. In his body, he sits and reigns on that throne, with that real body that he had from this world. He joined the two worlds together. That's the mystery of Christ that somehow in heaven and earth, there's no more breach anymore. There's no more, there's no more distance. Those things have been reconciled in Christ along with a lot of other things that were broken. And in Christ, that barrier has been broken down. So, icons are a statement about this world that it's through this world that God meets us. That ultimately... Our vision in the Orthodox Church is it's that matter, because of the Incarnation, conveys to us the grace and the life of God. That's how we receive it. The Fathers say there's no other way to receive it except through the matter. Think about it. Your baptism, water. Your chrismation, oil. The Eucharist, the bread, the wine. The priest stole when you hear a confession. I can't hear a confession really without a stole on. There are certain things that are, are, are necess necessary. And one of them is the matter of this world to convey the life of God to us. That is the way that it happens. Before the Incarnation, there was no way for that to happen. And so everybody's kind of walking around, wandering in a bit of darkness. But that sacramental worldview of the church is epitomized most specifically in the icon. The icon gives us an opportunity to look at this world differently. That it, I could meet God through this world, through my own life, through my own material world. I could meet the Lord today. And in fact, I have to in order to be saved.
So there's nothing wrong with the created world. But it does need renewal. It does need to enter into the church. One, one person said that all creation is called to enter into the church. Not just me and you. We bless flowers on, on dormition. We bless fruit on transfiguration. You know, it's funny because the flowers that we bless on dormition, I don't know if you ever read those prayers, but they're actually like these prayers that, that enable the flowers to exercise demons. They said that all demonic powers will flee when these flowers are brought into the home and used for, you know, uh, for every good and useful purpose, that every demonic power will be put to flight through these flowers. Isn't that wonderful? Flowers, um, you know, kicking out Satan. I mean, that's the church. That it's through the blessing of the church that the material world becomes a means by which we know God. That we experience God's life, that we experience God's energy. This is the radical message of the Orthodox Church through the icon. Through the icon. It's a reminder that not only is this world good, but it's through which that same world, whatever it is, through which I meet God today. So often we over-spiritualize over things, thinking that somehow if we could meet God, it will be somewhere in the future. That if when we meet God, it will be somewhere else than other than today. That when we do meet God, it will be somewhere past, I don't know, maybe the solar system, maybe, you know, like in Star Trek, how they go to the center of the galaxy and they find God. Remember that one? It's like that if you get far enough away, like that's where it's at. The reality is it's here. That's what the church is. God is in you. God is in me. We are the body of Christ. It's in our neighbor that ultimately we find the Lord. In that you did it to the least of these, my brethren, who did you do it to? Who did you do it to? Are, are, are they talking? Who are they talking about? Are they talking about just you, or just you, or just you, or just, and not someone else, or you, or you? Who are they talking about? The person sitting next to you. In that you did it to that person sitting next to you, you did it to who? Do we live like that? Do we think like that? That is the radical uh, call or charge or challenge of the gospel. That's it. Whatever I offer to you, I give to myself. If I offer you love, I'm giving myself, I'll get it back. If we, if we, whatever we sow, we reap. Give and it will be given back to you, even the bad stuff. Good measure, running over, pressed down, shaken together, together and overflowing, it says in the gospel. If I give it to you, I give it to myself. This is the message of the gospel. And if I can't find it today, I will never find it. The Lord is in the church. That's what the church is. It's the mystery of, you know, we sing it every time at, at Nativity. God is with us, right? We sing it all throughout Lent as well. God is with us. And a lot of times we're just singing, blah, 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 blah. You know, like, because we're not, it's hard to internalize that. It's hard to not only remember that, but actually to live like that. You know, oftentimes we live as if there, is, there wasn't a God who, didn't, who, who actually really cares, who actually really loves us and actually saved us. Sometimes we live our lives in such a way, I, I know I do sometimes. But that's the challenge. So St. Mark the ascetic, he has three great giants that undergird all the passions. I'll get back to the five saints in a little bit with, from the monastery. But main thing to remember is that St. Tikhon, the only way that he made it was because he was humble. He said yes. Every new obedience that said he said yes to God, okay. Bolshevik revolution, okay. 
Head of the church, okay. We're going to kill you now? Okay. That's what happened. Like, he just said yes, but that yes was salvation for him. It's oftentimes when we say no that we find that we're, we have loss. We say no to each other, no to the church, no to God, no to this, no to... Oftentimes, very, very rarely will we, will we win through that no. You know? Especially when somebody says, can you help me? And you're like, no. It's like, that is a major loss. That's a major loss. That was Jesus asking for help. You know, it doesn't matter who it is. I always try, you know, like, we've always done this in the monastery. We were very poor for a long time. So whenever anybody asks for anything, I always try to give them something. You know, we have a lot of requests in different ways at the monastery, but I always try to just do something, right? Because it's Jesus. And if I can't see that, I'm blind. I'm missing the point. And sometimes I, I do miss the point. Sometimes I miss the boat. I say, oh, that was God. He was trying to get me to do this, that, and the other thing. And I said no. So anyway, St. Tikhon, it was through his humility that, that, again, for us, he shows us the way. The three great giants that undergird all the passions, St. Mark the Ascetic says, are first and foremost forgetfulness of God. You know, you see in the Old Testament that they do crazy things, and then they says, and it's always prefaced with the, the saying in the Old Testament, they forgot God, and then they did this, that, and the other. They forgot God, and then they did this, that, and the other. They forgot God, and so that's why the psalmist is always exhorting us, forget not his benefits. Who, who, who redeems thy life from corruption, who crowns thee with mercy and compassion, who satisfies thy desire with good things so that thy soul shall be renewed like the eagles. It's like this is kind of the essence of spiritual life. Like we want to say, like, how do I live a spiritual life? Remember the Lord. The Proverbs is very, very clear about this. In Proverbs 3.15, it says, Remember the Lord in all your ways, and he will direct your steps. Very kind of simple, by the way, but it's the key to the whole deal. Because St. Basil says the remembrance of God is the presence of God. The remembrance of God is the presence of God. God is everywhere present and filling all things, but I'm not, I'm not present to that. I don't remember that. I don't think about that. I don't live like that. But if I'm mindful of God, it will lead me to prayer to God, to a dialogue with God, to an encounter with God, to a connection to God, which we desperately need. There is an inner part to this whole thing. Like, here's orthodoxy, right? Here we are, all this outside stuff here. I'm wearing my, my rasset. We have icons. There's the altar here. Here are all these external manifestations of an inner reality. There's an inner part to all of this. We hear about this in the gospel. It's epitomized when it says, Martha, 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 thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. And Mary has chosen that inner part, that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Why? Because she was sitting at the feet of Christ and listening. She was listening to the Lord. This is for all of us, and it's not about that Martha is, is bad. Right, Curry Martha? <laughs> Martha is needed. We do need Martha. She needs to run around and help. You know, we all have Martha inside of us. We all have Mary inside of us. But Mary has to be put first. If you put a life of prayer first in your life, miracles will happen. I can guarantee it. I've seen too many of them. And in fact, just the very nature of the world starts to become less opaque and more miraculous just in its own just daily, everyday kind of setting. How does that happen where the, the, the mundane becomes the miraculous? By 
me living a more devout inner life. There's an inner part that's just as real as the outer part, just as necessary as the outer part. It's like a chalice and the wine. Which one's more important? Well, the wine is, but if I don't have a chalice, then I can't put the wine in and I can't give it to you. So which one's more important? It's a matter of which one's more, like, first, really. I need both of them. They just, I, I need a part, I need something that will actually contain the inner part. And that's what all of the services and all of the liturgical life and all of the life that we've been asked to live in the church, that's the chalice. But what I'm asking for today is to put in the wine. And so often that wine comes from the cross in our life that leads us to our heart, which leads us to true prayer, which leads us to the encounter of God, which is communion with God, which is salvation. But it's kind of like wine. You know, our life is like wine in the church. You get crushed. The grapes have to be crushed in order for them to become good wine. If you just put all these grapes into a bottle, it's like from like 1970, like Chateau Margaux, just fill it up with all those grapes, right? Just leave them in that bottle. It wouldn't be a $3,000 bottle of wine. Chateau Margaux, right? I don't drink anymore, but it's sure good wine. <laughs> there's, ten, uh, there's 10 appellates in, in France that are like the French wineries. Chateau Margaux is one of them, and it's, you know, anyways, we won't go. Sorry. <laughs> Back to grapes. So if you put it, grapes into that bottle, it would be worthless. Those grapes have to be crushed. They have to be completely trodden down and just completely broken down for them to exude the juice that can be fermented by time, by patience, and the process of oxidation that brings it to be what it is, which is fine wine. So the question is, do we want to be fine wine or do we want to be spoiled grapes? Because either way, you know grapes are going to spoil, right? If you just leave them out, they're just, it's, it's over. Might as well make them into wine you put that, you know, they get crushed, they get broken, they go into the bottle, they get preserved, and then they become wonderful vintages which are very, very valuable. That's like Christian life. You say, well, why, did, why in the cross in my life? Why the suffering in my life? Why me looking at my brokenness all the time? Fine wine. Fine, do you want to be fine wine? Well, then we're all on our way. What's there to complain about? I know it's hard. I know it's terrible. I know it's fearful. I know it's... You know, I, 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 I call it, it's, it's uh, what is it, exquisite brutality sometimes. <laughs> and St. Isaac has this wonderful quote. He says that spiritual life is most epitomized by, he said, what did he say? He said, manifold forms of, well, no, multifaceted forms of unpleasantness. That is spiritual life, he says. So when it happens, we shouldn't be surprised. When spiritual warfare happens to us, we shouldn't be cast down and, and upset. have to understand how this works. So back to those three great giants. The remembrance of God is, is what inevitably helps us to lead us to prayer to God. So it's not like it's kind of an end, end point in and of itself. It's something that we have to use as like a springboard. This is the reality, though. I'm either going to dialogue with God, which is what I was created for, and what the, the whole ontology of my makeup is actually made for. It's kind of like gas in a car, right? Holy Spirit's like gas. I'm the car. You don't put any gas in. Don't go anywhere. Don't get very far. St. Justin Popovich had an interesting quote. He said, Without Christ, there is no man, only subhuman. 
Christ is the better part of our life in this world. He is like kind of the archetypal person who shows us who actually we are. He's like the archetype of everything that we are called to be, everything that we need to be, everything that we can be in Him, with Him. Like He said, without me you can do nothing, right? How much is that? Not a lot. So that dialogue with God is, is, is the option or the monologue with yourself and your passions. Those are the two choices. And the monologue can kill us. They call it mental illness in its final form. Constant inward why, how, what, they said this, she said this, he said that, I can't believe it, blah, 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 my life is terrible, etc., etc., ah, all that stuff inside, right? Stop it. I want to make shirts for the monastery, it says no drama. <laughs> right? All that stuff has to be tabled. Any of that in- internal drama, please, do yourself a favor, don't. <laughs> don't feed it. It's fatal. And a lot of times it actually comes from the enemy. You know, all of our thoughts that come through our head are not necessarily our thoughts. Did you know that? St. Maximus says that thoughts have three origins. 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 Origin. That's a different guy. (laughs) Origins. Origins? What is it? Origins. 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 All right. With an I instead of an E. It's been a long trip. (laughs) They come from our nature. That about 30%, maybe 40%. Like just our our own makeup, you know? I'm hungry, I'm this, I'm that, I'm tired, etc. 10 something percent angel, guardian angel. Good angel, you know, like the one on the shoulder in the movie. And then the other 30 to 40% from. Dark powers, bad places. You know, St. Paul says this. He says, we battle not against flesh and blood, which is me against you, but against principalities, powers, and rulers of darkness in high places. How do they act? How do they act in this world? Through thought. Through our mind. And in fact, angels, when St. John Damascene talks about angels, he says, the classic textbook definition of an angel is a mind in a mental place. Angels, he says, are minds, M-I-N-D-S, in mental places. And St. Silouan says, the spiritual warfare and the spiritual battle is a mind against mind. Our mind against the mind of the enemy. And you have to realize that there is an enemy. Just like you say, oh, well, there's, there's angels, right? You know, like we're touched by an angel. Everybody, you know, remember that TV show, right? Just like there's good people and bad people, there's good angels and there's bad angels. I'm sorry to break it to you, but just open the newspaper, you'll see. People are doing crazy things. Those thought viruses, as it were, can become societal as well. But the illness of the mind is part of the corruption of the world. And ultimately, some thinking leads us inevitably to death. And death is really the ultimate problem with everything. What is the problem with the created world? We were just talking about how creation is good, right? Created world is good. What is the problem with me and you? It's not our created being. It's not even necessarily our bad thinking, even though it can lead us to terrible places. The problem is, is that we've inherited something called, it's a congenital inheritance, it's called death. St. Paul says, death is the last enemy to be destroyed. And he says in his epistle to Hebrews, that Christ came to destroy him who had the power of death, which is the devil, and to free those who all their lifetime were subject to bondage. 
So death is something that is inside of me very deeply. It's part of our generation, how we're generated as people in a fallen world. It comes with the package. Right? We get it. It's kind of like a, it's a congenital inheritance. That's why we don't have original sin. Everybody knows that, right? I'm not guilty because someone else did something. I'm sorry. That just sounds stupid. Right? That's just bad theology. And it comes from a bunch of other problems, which you can read about in my book. I talk about just briefly. But it is a problem. And we tend to think that, oh, you know, all these theological ideas, this guy's coming in and he's like talking to me about theology. And it's like, okay, number one, theologies are just words about God. Theologia. Words about God. Simple, right? And how I believe will have a direct impact on how I live and how I act. And a lot of the problems in society are systemic or in part and parcel with bad theology. Just look at, like in its most kind of obvious form, a Muslim society. And somehow uh, how people are denigrated, women and children are still considered property, and you can kill infidels, and you can do all these things. Why? Because the thought process in the theology is bad to begin with. But it works itself out in our society as well on lots and lots and lots of levels. One of them is thinking that somehow I have inherited this thing called original sin. And if I've inherited original sin, that means there's a fundamental problem with me that I'm already guilty of. And that's a terrible beginning point for anybody, wouldn't you say? Isn't that a tough place to begin? I've already have enough problems, and now I got another one. You're telling me I'm an original sin, and this means that I'm bad to begin with? It's like, in that Western theological model, people, all of us, they say are damaged beyond repair. That they are fundamentally damaged to the point where God, uh, the image of God in us is destroyed, or mm, uh, what would be the word, uh, the right word? Uh, vitiated, I don't know, in, in Latin. Anyways, it's destroyed. In the Orthodox thought process, the image of God in us is damaged. It's not destroyed. It's not in, irreparably damaged. It has problems and flaws and it's broken, but it can be healed and fixed. So this theology of the West is called ontological flaw. That Before I've even begun, I'm already way behind. And this oftentimes leads people to have a lot of difficulties in different ways in their lives when they think about it like this. The reality is, is that God in the church has a way to make us whole. It's not a juridical thing where somehow I'm pronounced okay or saved, but really actually healed. And it's a lifelong process. It's a lifelong process. In fact, there's three stages of spiritual life. The first stage of spiritual life... St. Sophroni says it can last anywhere between seven minutes and seven years, and it's called the first grace. When I come to the church, you just got chrismated, right? Or received by baptism or whatever, right? You just came to the church, right? So you're more or less probably in a first grace state. It means that your perception is enhanced by the grace of God in a very special way that gives you a pattern for the rest of your life after that grace leaves. So the second stage of spiritual life, after that seven minutes to seven years, I think mine was seven minutes, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe yours will be seven years. But after that first grace comes the second, grace, second, second stage, and that is basically the desert. The desert. 
where we try to pattern our lives after that pattern that was given to us at the beginning, but we don't have the grace anymore and things are very difficult. Things are very dark. Sometimes you don't know what way to go, but we still try to be faithful to that original pattern and grace that we received at the beginning. As We live as if we had it, even though we don't. And that stage lasts the majority of our lives. We see this in the, it's a classic spiritual paradigm. You see it in the Old Testament, right? When the Israelites, they came out of Egypt, they were brought out miraculously through the water, they were fed manna, all these lights, fireworks, things that were going on, pillars of cloud, all this stuff was happening, right? And then the desert. For how long? 40 years. Uh Uh-oh. 40 years? Can we at least have some onions and garlic, they said? Moses said no. 40 years. But that's actually an image of this, this number 40 is like an image of, of a perfect completion of time. It's like Christ fasted for 40 days in the desert. We fast for 40 days during Lent. The Israelites were in the desert for 40 years. This number 40 has like some numerical, when it's the fullness of time and when it's complete, that's when it will be done. So we live most of our life in that place. So how to receive, and it's not like, you know, if I was to show you some kind of graph, it would be like, here we start down here at the bottom. When we like start with God, we go all the way up here, right? But we don't go back down here. We go kind of like right here somewhere, like right in the middle. And then we kind of oscillate like this. And we kind of slowly, we don't even know it, but we're going up. Slowly, slowly. We don't know. But it's so slight, like it's, it's like those elevations, like when you're driving from Kansas into Colorado. It's like this. You go for like hours just like this up into the Rockies, and you're like... What is happening? And then all of a sudden these weird rocks start appearing around you. You don't even know what's... All of a sudden you're in the Rockies. You're like, how did that happen? It's like that. It's just barely like this. But it's kind of this oscillating this. Up and down, up and down. A little bit of heaven, a little bit of hell. A little bit more of heaven, a lot more of hell. And there's actually a concurrent movement like this in spiritual life that if I'm going to go all the way up here and be with Christ on high, I have to go all the way and be able to go down at the bottom and below as well. Why? St. Zephroni says, it's like a tree. If the roots don't go down far enough, if the higher it goes, it will just fall over. So the hell part of our lives, the cross part, the difficult part, is that going down that downward movement, that epitomizes spiritual life. That is, it's like how to be thankful, how to be faithful, how to be a Christian down at the very bottom right here. When you're at your lowest spot right there, see that thing on the floor, and then you just like... Like a, you get just crushed even more sometimes. It's like how to be faithful and Christian and loving and kind right down here. At the very bottom. Yeah, as a grape, right? Just, you remember now. See, you got first grace. Everyone else is kind of more coffee. More coffee. But how to do it when you're down at the bottom. That's, that's the challenge. But that's, that's where Christianity happens. That's where Orthodox life is lived. It's not lived up here on high because we couldn't bear it. We just had Bright Week last week, and I almost fell apart. It was, it was way too much. It's so bright, you become a, basically a pile of goo by the end of the week. It's so hot, bright, and it's the presence of God. And it, 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 it warms and illumines on Pascha. And then as you get into Tuesday and Wednesday, those same services repeat all week long in the monastery. And by the time you get to Friday, I am this 
pile of wax on the floor. The candles burned down, and somehow the floor is being burnt, and there's just this pile, and they said, that's Father Sergius right there. <laughs> that's what happened to me. They had to scrape me off the floor. But that is what Christian life is like. It's like you can't live up on high like that in a fallen state. It's too much for us. So where do we find most of our, uh, most like the most benefit down here? Right here on the floor, right, right there. That's where St. Sophroni says the, the, the most difficult times of our life if we manifest fidelity to Christ and try to live according to the gospel, he says the most fruitful times will be down at the very bottom. That's where we'll see our life was the most meaningful, the most growth, um, the most enlightenment. And a lot of times, you know, the saints, whenever they, you know, they, they experience the uncreated light, one of the hallmarks of Orthodox spirituality, by the way, is this um, encounter or vision of the uncreated light, which is basically the kingdom of God. It's a mountain of transfiguration. Uh, where that icon is? There it is. There it is, yeah. That light of Tabor, right? St. Paul saw it. Prophet Isaiah saw it. Prophet Moses saw it. He went up to the top of the mountain. He came back down with it. He says his face shone like the sun. He says he spoke to the Lord as one would speak to a friend. He had dialogue with God. And it was through that dialogue that that light became manifest in his face, his actual body. The disciples saw it on Mount Tabor. St. Silouan saw it on Manathos, sitting in church one night in front of the icon of Christ. St. John Maximovich saw it. St. Tikhon of Moscow saw it. St. Tikhon of Zidane saw it. This is the hallmark of Orthodox spiritual life. It's only, it only happens to maybe one, two, three, four, five in a generation. But that's sufficient for the rest of us. Because what happens is it so changes them that it actually heals, heals the fall in them. And they become a light and a luminary and a, like a fountain, like a, an inexhaustible fountain of life and light and grace for the rest of us. So the St. Silouans of the world, we couldn't bear that. Because it's basically, when they are at the very, very bottom, and then you go into the, and this, is, and like, this is where we stop, they continue down into the basement. Do you have a basement? No. Well, anyways. Next door. Next door, there's a basement. They keep going even further down. And when they are at the very bottom of that floor, they pop out on the top, and that's when they see the uncreated light. It doesn't happen when they're in a good... They're at their very last moment where they're just about ready to just burst and, and basically the candle is to be snuffed out in their minds. That's what's happening. And that's when the light dawns. It doesn't happen any other way. So it's being able... Because I don't know what it is, but God's light is so bright in this world it's dark. It's interesting that one of these philosophers, a very good poet uh, in Russian, he says, God gives sufficient light to those who wish to see and sufficient darkness to those who don't want to see. So, we're, you know, how we look at the world is like, and what we believe and what we think, it directly influences not only how I act, but even what I can receive from God. If I think God is merciless and doesn't like me and he's just like my dad or my mom or my family or whatever, then I lose that opportunity to receive grace from this world, which is ever-present. And somehow that veil of opacity needs to be lifted, and it happens through having an inner life. We'll, we'll talk about inner life after the break because, you know, I could go on forever, unfortunately, because I teach at seminary. So, you know, I had to talk to Father Matthew quite a bit. <laughs> He was actually in my music class, though, so it was, it was a little different. But the point being is that that experience of that light is 
it happens in the Orthodox Church, it's a necessity in the Orthodox Church, and it confirms the authenticity of our dogmatic, our corporate vision of who God is, because it's the vision of God, and it's the same for each person. Same one for those saints, for same for St. Moses, same for the prophet Isaiah, same for St. Paul, same for St. Silouan, same for St. Sophroni who saw that light. He actually lived in that light sometimes for days on end. He would like live in that light, like he saw two lights, that world, the light of that world and the light of this world. In fact, there was a neat story I heard when I was, last time I was at the monastery. They knew an ascetic on Manathos that St. Sophroni knew. And um, this saint was in his, his little cell up on the mountain. And he, came, he, he apparently he had the vision of this light. You know? It doesn't happen very often and it doesn't happen to most people. We, would, you know, we couldn't, just couldn't bear it. You know, the disciples, you see how they, they reacted on Mount Tabor. It wasn't, wasn't a pleasant experience. This saint, though, had this, the vision of this light in his room. And he came out of his cell, and he asked across the way, it might have been to St. Sophroni, he says, I see the moon is out. What time of day is it? You know, what time is it? He says, it's lunchtime. The sun looked like the moon compared to that light. Shows you how bright it is, how, how unendurable it is, how radiant it is. If you thought the sun was the moon, you know, it gives you a perspective, gave me perspective. It's like, wow, that's serious. So, the remembrance of God is the foundation of all spiritual life. It is so important for us to remember God as often as we possibly can, in whatever way we can, to constantly try to connect our life to God. Because we are the priest of our lives, and we serve at the altar of our heart. And if I'm not offering my, God, my life to God with thanksgiving and asking for His blessing and His help, who will? The priest can only do so much. He's very busy doing it himself and for everybody else. But I need to offer my life to God as often as I can. That means moment by moment, day by day, year by year. It is the one thing that I see in the, in the seminary. People come to the seminary and they say, Oh, I want to be a priest. Sometimes what they're looking for is the altar of their heart. And they don't know how to pray and offer their life to God with thanksgiving. If they found that priesthood, which we all have, the priesthood of believers, they wouldn't need to go to seminary because they would find the inner part, which is the one thing needful. They're looking for it. They externalize it. We externalize it all the time. We think it's in money. We think it's in a relationship. We think it's in this. We think it's in that. We're looking for something. What are we looking for? That inner part. There is an inner part. There is an inner life. The Orthodox Church has the most complete, the most coherent, and the most perfect understanding of what the inner life is and how to do it. That is our deep tradition. That is kind of the inheritance of which St. Herman brought to this country. You know, when St. Herman was uh, in Valam Monastery, they asked for eight monks to you. Everybody knows the story. But when they were on their way here, they stopped in St. Petersburg. It was 1793. And Metropolitan Gabriel had just printed what, what it is, is everybody knows what the Philokalia is, right? It's this compendium of orthodox inner life, like how to pray, how to be inside. It's called the neptic tradition. The neptic kind of noetic tradition of the church. How to be inside, how to be merry, basically, is the, the guidebook. And all this, these things were collected over the course of, mm, I don't know, about 100 years or so, maybe a little bit less. It was really metropolitan. Uh, it was St. Nicodemus of the Holy Mountain and, and uh, St. Cor... Uh, Saint 
Marcarius of Corinth, who collected all of these things from Mount Athos, all these different old manuscripts, St. Isaac the Syrian, Saint, uh, all the early fathers, all these things, they put them into a compendium, it's called the Philokalia. Then they published it in Greece in like 1720, 1730, 1740, something like that. And then it was taken to Russia and published in Russian. It's the first time ever. 1793, they were hot off the press, quote-unquote, right? And who is it that just happens to pass by on his way to America but St. Herman of Alaska? And Metropolitan Gabriel gave him a brand new copy of the Philokalia. This compendium of inner Orthodox tradition and life and culture. They were, each monk was given one, and it's still, at, from what I understand, still at the seminary today, St. Herman's Philokalia. Right? But this is the, that book about this inner life, which is so needful. It's the one thing needful. And what is it in, the, in essence, if I could just say, like, what, he's like, well, what is that? It's like the inner turning of the heart to the Lord. This inner turning of the heart to the Lord to dialogue, asking for his blessing, his mercy, his help, his light, his life, and his love. This constant and ceaseless invocation of the blessing and assistance of God. This inner turning of the Lord is what brings us to union with God. St. John Climacus says there's three words that basically um, his textbook definition of prayer are three words. Prayer is converse and union with God. Converse and union. It's our conversation with God that affects our union with God, just like Moses has brought him that light. So that conversation with God, it's the easiest way to do is the Jesus prayer. Right? Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me. Simplest way. And yet, if we can find in that place some stillness, and ultimately just kind of go in and actually kind of keep at it, eventually the light will dawn. Not necessarily like Mount Tabor or something like that, but that inner light which is actually already there because we just uncover what's already been given at baptism. All of us carry within us the grace of God through baptism. I was just reading John this morning, except a man be born of the water and spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven? That grace which goes into the heart at baptism. And what are we doing in prayer? We're uncovering it. We're allowing it some space. We're giving it some room. We're opening up kind of the door and the box of that gift, and it starts to burn brightly. And it's almost like we're just blowing on that ember of baptism, and it becomes a fire inside of us. This is the mystery of the inner life, that it's already there. It's already there. And yet, it's through that effort of our attention blowing on it and speaking to God. You know, when you're speaking, lots of air comes out, sometimes hot air, right? Like, I got a lot of hot air coming out right now. But as we speak, air comes out and it actually fans that ember of that grace, which is already there. And it burns brighter. And in the saints, it becomes a fire. It becomes a light. It becomes a place of incredible illumination so that they, we remember these people forever. Because their light is so bright. And that presence of God, which is eternal in them, dwells so much that their memory is eternal. In fact, we can't stop remembering them. So, questions about this so far? I know all this stuff is kind of deep sometimes. I try to make it palatable. I'll probably have a few more jokes after at, at lunch just to keep you awake. And, you know, we might have to do some calisthenics or something if it gets too... <laughs> Too, uh, too, too sleepy. But any questions about this so far? 
And now is the time to ask. I know you have some people have questions. Like, just ask them now. Don't ask me at lunch because a lot of times somebody has a question that's really good that actually is a dovetail or something that I didn't say or I needed to say or something I wanted to say and I forgot or whatever. So if you have a question, I would be glad to, um, you know, interact because it's important for me to connect with you in that regard. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, it, what it does is it, it, because we have the congenital inheritance of death, the will tends towards corruption. It tends towards death. It's, that's where the epicenter of the fall is. It's in, it's in our will, and so we can't do God's will. So St. Paul talks about this. It's like, Woe unto me, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The good that I want to do, I don't do. Yeah. The bad stuff I don't want to do, that's what I do. He says, woe unto me. It's like, it's just not like it's like that all the time, but it happens often sometimes. You know, we're like, why did I do that? You know, so the will is, the, is where, where God kind of comes to heal us. And a lot of times we'll go through some difficult tribulations in our lives to kind of correct the will. You know, it's like, it's, it's therapeutic. You know, God's not retributive. He's not into retribution. He is good. He is love. That never changes. It's like the sun, right? The, when, you're, when the clouds are out, um, do you say, oh, the sun doesn't like me anymore? <laughs> oh, the sun's mad at me, right? Like, what kind of, you know, it's stupid, right? But we say that about God. Oh, my life is terrible right now. God doesn't like me. Gospel doesn't say, like your neighbor, right? The gospel message is about love. God's love is, is unconditional. And in fact, it's, it's like it's too much for us. The love of God is precisely what we would call, for people who don't want it, hell. Have you ever known somebody that really loved you? Maybe an aunt or an uncle or a friend or something, and you just didn't want it anymore? You didn't, it was too much for you? Can you imagine that on like a cosmic scale? Right? Aunt Susie or... You know, Uncle Billy or whatever, and it's like, no, you know, don't don't want that. So one second. So that love for us that never changes, you know. And whatever is going on for us, it's like if we turn to God, if we offer to God, if we connect it to God, like most basic thing, me connecting my daily life to God. And then the second part is just to say thank you for it. Even the bad stuff. Because there's very few things in the scripture that actually say, here's the will of God for you. Now, number one, reading the gospel is, is, is essential for us, especially like on a daily basis. Like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can never go wrong. Over and over and over again, I revisit those gospels every single day, just a little bit, a line, a verse, uh, several verses, maybe a chapter, however much I can read. I need to read it, though, every day. Why? It's like leaven. It has the power to actually lift us up to the kingdom. The words that Christ speak, he says, the words I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. St. Nicholas says the gospel is not a book but a power. It's the leaven of the kingdom. There's grace in it. It's a grace-bearing word. And that's like, there's so many concepts to talk about and think about, but it's called sacramental word, right? You ever hear in the desert fathers, they say, Father, give me a word. What are they asking for? They're asking for some kind of word that's specifically tailored to me and my situation that actually will empower me to do what I need to do. 
that somehow there's some kind of power in it that's like gives me some some vitality to say yes and go do it right so a real sacramental word is grace bearing and Christ who is the word himself he's an un, it's it's uncreated power you know the wisdom the power of God right with Christ himself and that word is incredibly transformative. So each time we revisit the gospel and even the epistles, we can be renewed by that word. But it's essential for us to actually encounter it on a daily basis, or at least every you know few times a week or something. It's essential. It's essential because it's a constant re- reference point in our lives. I, I can't do it myself. I can't figure all this spiritual life out myself. I need a constant source and reference point of, of to remind me that Everything is in God's hands. And in that same vein about what I was saying, there's very few things that the scriptures say, here's exactly what you have to do. One of the things that the gospel says to do, says to give thanks for everything. Even the bad stuff. I know it's hard. Too bad. Do it anyways. It won't hurt you. He says, because this is the will of God concerning you in Christ Jesus. Isn't that weird? There's only a couple of things that it says, here's the will of God for you. One of them says to be thankful. Nobody likes a complainer, right? I got a whole bunch at home, right? It drives me crazy sometimes. It's like, we, I try to do so much for the monster and for the people, like, no, it's not good enough. I was like, what? I've been working all day. Like, why don't you just close your mouth, you know? <laughs> Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I love the people that are thankful. I'm like, oh, please stand next to me right here. I've had a rough day. Seems like it's getting worse. Come over closer. Keep telling me good things, right? God wants us to be thankful so he can give us more. You know how you have a complainer? You don't want to give them any more. It's like, all right, then fine. Just, you know, don't eat your macaroni or whatever. Like, just, I'm not going to give you anything else. That's, that's, I'm not even going to think about you. Why? Because you've already kind of excommunicated yourself in that moment on some, some basic level, whether familial or otherwise. It's like, go to bed, right? You say to the kids, right? You don't want your dinner, go to bed. So if I'm thankful, though, God wants to give me even more, though. It's, it's an opportunity. It's an opening. So there's just a few things that it says, and one of them it says to be thankful. And if we are thankful in the sense of like, because I, I, I always do that same thing, too, we were talking about in the car. Just, you know, if you're having a tough day, just think of five things you're thankful for. So many things to be thankful for. I mean, I'm wearing an, a watch that like somehow goes into outer space and tells me things about other people's lives and like what I need to do. It's like, that's pretty cool. I'll be thankful for my, my watch, you know? And I got this prayer rope that's like one of these ones that's like got, uh, you know, that's nice. I'm thankful for my prayer rope because I, I so often I lose them, you know? So I'm glad I have one that kind of like stays on me. It's like, I got shoes. I got a new pair of shoes on the way which is really nice because I get one new pair every year. And so these are on their way out, and I'm really thankful that I'm getting some new shoes. I mean, on and on and on and on. We had a car that drove us here. I didn't have to walk. We're going to have some lunch in a little bit. I'm not going to have to be hungry like half of the world. Onward and on and on and on and on. You could go on forever. I'm so glad that I have my new glasses that I got a few months ago because the other ones were all scratched up. I could go on forever. And so can you. That's what we have to focus on. Question. Um, let me, let me capture it, because um, I, I, I got really into what you were saying there. Um, so you were talking about, yes, okay, so it was about hell and how kind of the love of God, when experienced too much for people, is hell. Basically. Could you go into yeah. that a little bit? 
Well, St. Isaac says this really, basically, he says, for, for the sinner, God is hell, and for the saint, God is heaven. <laughs> the love of God is, is, is that. So the thing about that light that we were talking about, St. John Climacus says, the, the, un, the, the super celestial fire at one and the same time illumines and burns. So it's our, it's our own disposition that determines how we actually experience God. Some people, it's like, you just got to get it, you know, like, sometimes I'm in church, right? And I think about this often. So I'm in church a lot. You know, I, I think every year it's like 12,000 hours or something like that. And you know, like, to get a pilot's license, you need 10,000 hours. So I got, well, no, maybe I think it's every 10, it's, I can't remember how. Anyways, hold on one second, okay? Yeah, you got it. Um, anyways, I spend a lot of time in church, so I think sometimes, like, when I don't want to be in church, what's happening? You know? And sometimes it's like, I cannot be in there at all. Like, I got to get out of there. What is that? And I think what it is, is it's like my fallen nature, the place where God's presence is the most dense on planet Earth is in the altar of an Orthodox church. It's really kind of localized there. If you want to know where God is, it's in the altar. And in a monastery, that's like times 10 or times 100, depending on what monastery you're in, like the ones on, on Manathos. They are like scary powerful. Our altar, it's like from, I know our altar at St. Tegon's, it's from that altar to God's ear. You know? And it says that in the prayers of consecration. If you look at the prayers of consecration for an Orthodox church, um, it talks about it say it's the same as Second Chronicles chapter six and seven. It talks over and over again that that if anybody prays towards this altar, you will hear them, you will forgive them, you will help them, and those prayers are reiterated at the consecration of an altar, so that basically it's like that altar is like God's ear. And that whatever is prayed for at that altar, that somehow God would not only be hearing, but he'd also be favorably inclined to. What happens in a monastery is that after the course of 100 or 200 or 500 or 1,000 years, that power grows and it becomes more intense. And it's almost like each service is taking out a scoop of dirt and putting uh, another log on the fire because it's a fire. It's the fire of God's presence. And so after a thousand years, this place, you know, the place becomes just huge with this fire like that's burning there on a spiritual level. And the power of it is is sometimes overwhelming. You 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 uh, I mean you can't even describe it. However, back to my point. Um I think that that suffering, whether the suffering that we endure in sickness or the suffering that we endure in um, our lives, like through trials and tribulations, or the suffering that we endure sometimes in spiritual life by mm, having like difficulties of like not wanting to be in church or not wanting to be in God's presence or not wanting to pray or whatever like that. When we do those things anyways, it actually strengthens us to stand in God's presence, which we wouldn't be able to bear otherwise. You know, I'm thinking, what am I doing here when I don't really want to be in church? Do I really need to be here? And like more often than not, I do. I need to push through it because it's actually strengthening me kind of like calisthenics or some kind of workout so that I can bear a little bit more of that presence. Because when it comes at the second coming, the second coming is going to happen. And when it happens, um, basically it says everybody will be united to God whether they want to be or not. 
Union, like, there's one modern contemporary uh, person, he said, heaven is coming for everyone, and everybody is going for he to heaven, but some, for some people it's going to be called hell, because they won't want to be there. They won't want it. Because, you know, if we live a life that's contrary to it, there's no way to kind of acclimatize. And so one of the theologians says they'll be united contrary to grace. So it's like a big giant rocket engine, right? And instead of like going out the, the right tube, it goes the wrong direction and it just keeps burning into the wrong place. It's like it's not rightly oriented and it just shoots this incredible power or fire, you know. But St. Nikolai says that the force of the second coming will actually raise the dead. It will be that powerful. Um, so for us in our lives, how to bear those crosses, because the cross is this sign of God, of, and it's a revelation of God's presence to us in this world, of how God lives, who God is, and how we relate to His life. For us, God's life will always be a cross. It will never be otherwise. It will always be kind of difficult, and like, oh, that's not very pleasant. Oh, I don't really like that. Who likes a cross, right? But to acclimatize ourselves to it kind of on a gradual level by saying yes, like we talked about earlier, like that spiritual word of just being able to say yes to the difficulty of my life, yes to my spouse who might be in trouble or, or troubling me, yes to my kids who might be wayward, yes, and not, not in a way to just kind of surrender and lie down, but in a way to be kind of like prayerfully proactive in a way is like kind of watching and praying and being patient, you know? Um, the one thing that spiritual life gives us, if I have a consistent life of prayer, which is what we'll talk about kind of like of how to after the, the lunch hour, which, you know, usually causes people to be very tired and we'll talk about prayer, which is kind of, it's exciting, don't worry. <laughs> it's going to be really exciting. Um, the thing about it is, is having that consistent life of prayer, it enables me to be less reactive and more responsive. Spiritual life is always this mm, capacity in me to, it's like the less spiritually like mm, fit I am, the more reactive I'm going to be. So you come up to me and say, hey, what are you doing? And I'm like, hey, I'm going to start fighting, right? Punch it out, right? Monks of the Holy Sepulchre do that sometimes. I remember seeing the news the other, like a couple years ago. Monks in the Holy Sepulchre during Easter were punching each other and beating each other up. It's like, I understand why. I totally get it. And it's like, how shocking, those religious people. It's like, yeah, I know. I, I, I understand. It's okay, I, didn't, I haven't done it. But I know what they're talking about. So... That reactivity, though, is, is like what needs to be tabled. That is the passionate life. Me just kind of knee-jerking it and saying, hey, stop that, and being like this, right? Pushy and mean and, and, and a jerk and all those stuff. It's just that reactivity. That's what gets tabled when I have a consistent life of prayer, and I become more responsive, and it's almost like I cease living on the surface of life, and I go in like this, and I live more like in here. So there's all this room for you. And whatever else is going on, and whatever God really is asking me, there's, there just keeps getting to be more room as time goes by, and I continue to live in a consistent way of prayer. And I'm talking about, like, let's say, like, we were saying, what is a consistent life of prayer? Even if you just started, you never said, I don't really have a prayer rule. Ten minutes of doing the Jesus prayer, read a chapter from the Gospel, and read just a little bit of something like St. Silouan, that's it. That's all I'm talking about. But if you do it consistently, that is the key to the whole thing. It's supposed to expand. You don't want to just stay there. It's supposed to expand, but just starting with something that simple is incredibly effective towards responsivity and being more responsive in my life so that I'm not a victim anymore. I become a victor.
You know, I actually kind of encounter the grace of Christ, which enables me to be more than conquerors, as St. Paul says. So, uh, what was your question? <laughs> I forgot. I forgot. We're talking about hell, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. So, you know, and, you know, there's that classic saying in, in the philosophical kind of uh, modern thought, you know, hell is the other. For Orthodox people, heaven is the other. But the, it's, it's about me being more responsive and living a more responsive life so that no matter what you're doing, I can let you be free. St. Sophronius says there's two benchmarks of spiritual life. After a, a long while of struggling and praying and fasting and weeping and doing all the things that repentance calls us to do, we get to a point where we cease to want to dominate other people. That's the first benchmark of like, not progress, because who can really say progress? Because you can lose it at any time, you know? Especially if you have a bad day or a bad night or a bad week or a bad year, whatever. It's not like something that you hold on to and you say, oh, I got this. No. God gives it and He can take it away quite quickly. But I cease to want to dominate other people. That comes from the reactive part. Me demanding that you have to be a certain way for me to be okay. Even if you kill me, like the martyrs, right? They said, oh, thank God, you know, they're killing us, it's for Jesus. And they were like, fine with it. Why? Because they had that grace of God. For them, they had already overcome death in their own person, and they were already in life. didn't matter whether you killed them or not. And we saw that with the lady that got her head cut off. She was still, I thought she was still alive. And for all intents and purposes, she is. Whoever believes in me shall never see death. You know, this is the message of the gospel. It's, it's how to overcome that congenital inheritance of death, which is the problem inside of us. What is it that's wrong? We die. We're not supposed to die. You know that? We weren't created for death. In the Old Testament, it says in the book of Sirach, God does not delight in the death of the living because God did not make death. It came by the will of man. When he chose to go away from him who is the source of life, that's when he died. That's what the Garden of Eden is. It's the presence of God. And so the whole purpose is just try to kind of rectify like my will and join it and unite it to God's will and be empowered by God's grace to do the right thing. And oftentimes that comes through a bunch of adversity and things that I don't really like. Now is... Now you talked about sort of in the final judgment when it's really over. Yeah. And the dead rise again and all are brought before God. Right and experience his presence either as paradise or torment to a certain extent. It's what happens now before the final judgment for those who pass on and let's say are not on the, on the path of divine ascent, let us say, what, what is the sort of church's teaching on sort of where they're at now before the final judgment? Well, there's... That's a very complicated question. Um, but I think that the most important thing that we can say is, like uh, one of the modern bishops told me one time, he said, never take the, 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 the last judgment from God. We just don't know. <clears throat> a lot of times they're in a, in a foretaste of either heaven or hell, depending on the state of their own soul. And that's why, though, the prayers of the church are so important for us. Because you know how if you're in the hospital and everybody's praying for you, I don't know if you've ever been there and that's like that, and you feel almost like you're in heaven. And it's like, oh, all these people are praying for me. I feel like I'm in paradise. It's like, I wish this would happen all the time. But that kind of shows us that even when we're in a weakened state, 
people's prayers can assist us and make us feel better. They can, they can lift the soul up to God. The same way somebody who's passed from this life, it's the same thing. All these people praying for them, it lifts the soul up to God, they feel better. It affects them in the same way. They haven't died. Nobody dies in the sense of like an ultimate sense of being extinguished. They're still conscious, you know. Um, so we don't really know, but that's why the church prays. And, and I know that a lot of times people, um, we, we have liturgy every day, so we're always praying for the departed. It's, one, it's like most important thing that we do. Because once somebody is dead, they can't do anything else. And so if you think that spiritual life will be somewhere in the world to come and that you're going to be doing something spiritual in the world to come and you're not doing it today, we are totally missing the point. Today is the day for salvation, St. Paul says. It's not tomorrow. There's no other time. If we're doing it now, then, then there'll be a, a possibility or, or a, 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 you know, uh, the hopeful certainty that we'll be continuing to do it in the world to come. Being in communion with God being well disposed towards others, being not so reactive, being prayerful, all these things. Prayer is kind of the thing that's like it tunes the, the, the satellite of the soul so that it can receive like the radio and TV signals of heaven in the world to come because it leaves this world. So it's like it, it tunes the heart to the, to the frequency of God so it can re- keep receiving that transmission in the world to come when we leave this world. So I have to start it though today though. If it doesn't start today... No way. No way. Like, there's no more time. Time is no more. Like, when you you leave this world, time is a function of this world, not the world to come. It says that the second coming, there will be time no more. So, for those who have passed, we can still help them, though. So, that's why it's so important to give alms for people that have died, have prayers for them, monasteries praying for them. It really helps. I know it does. I've seen it, you know. Um, So... Anyways, I hope that answers your question. Question back there? My question, what we were talking about remembering God, um, and I was going to ask something about that also, that um, if we remember them, and we're trying to draw near to God, like, you know, does that help them? Yeah. Kind of unite from God? Because I know, like, you're talking about the annoying aunt or the parent figure that is, you don't want to talk to their... Right. You know, and love right. Like, love your brother kind of feels different. Mm-hmm. Can help us draw near to God, but like, um, yeah. Just I was going to ask about praying for the dead and how that helps. Um, and um, and if our intercessions can kind of change anything for them. Absolutely. Like this hell is. Absolutely. The last judgment is for. Uh, the devil and his angels, not for humans. That's correct. But now it kind of starts a new question. Um, people outside the church, like the ignorant, the people that like live righteous lives. Oh, absolutely. Well, St. <coughs> Saint, Paul talks about that very clearly. He says they'll be judged by their conscience when either uh, their conscience accuses or excuses them on the day when Christ judges the world. So... Yeah, the conscience is kind of the voice of God inside of us, and that's why it's really important to try to listen to it, because that's the real accuser, you know, when they talk about it in the gospel. Make peace with your accuser before you're dragged to the, to the magistrate and he puts you into prison. That's like that end of life kind of thing where it's like magistrate is, is God, prison is, is the world to come in the sense of like time no more, and make peace with your own conscience. Like sometimes making peace with ourselves is like the most important thing we can do, learn to do. So then... Can you tell me about the conscience? Because, like, if our 
paralyzed my ears. You can talk about the so good. When you read the Psalms, you know, your point of, like, I said unto my soul, right? You have like, mm -hmm. dialogue with the soul that is, you're kind of like that at the time in your life. Your news is kind of pointing at it. Mm -hmm. What is this impartial judge inside of us that, like, convicts us all the time? Well, it's, it's there's, the yeah, it's, what it is is, I mean, the, the Father's call it the voice of God. But there can be, you know, there's a well-formed conscience, and then there's like a deformed conscience. So we have to be very careful. The gospel has to be kind of our guidebook, because we can be either over-scrupulous or not sensitive enough. You know, like sometimes we might hurt someone else. We don't know, you know, and our conscience doesn't rebuke us, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there was nothing wrong. Um, so the gospel always has to inform the conscience and kind of guide us in the sense of what to know as to be good and what to know as to be bad. But that conscience is a very powerful part of the image of God inside of us, which is epitomized by our freedom, our ability to choose. It's trying to say, hey, don't do that. Somebody say something? It's like, stop it. It's like, well, who's, where's that coming from? Yeah, what kind of but that it's it's the inner part of the image of God inside of us that has like this own compass to like kind of good and evil you know the less we follow it the less it says it's like alright fine it's like God you know in the sense of like God the less we listen to him he's like alright no problem I'll just be over here you get clouds now yeah it's like I'll be over here if you you know if you want to talk to me I'll just be you know right here you know and I'll be knocking though still but I'm just going to be outside Right? It says in the book of Revelation, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Right? It's kind of like the conscience. It's kind of like God in different ways in our lives, how He continues to try to speak to us. And the reality is, is that God is always speaking to us. Oftentimes, I'm not listening. But if I listen to you, I have an opportunity to listen to Him. It always starts with my neighbor. If I can't love you, there's no way I'm going to say I love God. Too bad. Like, give me a break. Like, this is a total facade. If I can't listen to you and honestly consider you, I'll never be able to listen to God either. How do, how do I know the will of God in the monastery? I listen to the other monks. Very simple. Uh, oftentimes the priest comes to me and says, what should I do in this situation? I say, what does your wife say? So she says, do this. That's, that's, that's what I would say too. Listen to the voice. That voice is oftentimes, especially in a sacramental commitment, is God speaking to us. Not like in the sense of like, you know, Jesus like embodied, but in a way that's just mystical and present. It says, wherever two or three are gathered, what? In the midst of marriage, in the midst of a community, in the midst of a church, in the midst of monastic, monastic communities... God is in the midst. And so that sacramental word, like we were talking about before, where we're looking for a word from God, right? We should always live like that, expecting God to speak to us. That doesn't mean that everything that comes across the board is going to be from Jesus. Although, you know, a lot of times, you know, depending on the day, it might be. However, more often than not, we need discernment. But oftentimes the voice of God will be speaking to us in multiple times in the same, same thing in lots of different ways. Do this. Don't do that. Try this, etc. But often we'll see it in that midst of that community which is sacramental, which is marriage and monasticism. And in the life of our community in the church. It's there. We just have to be able to listen. If I can listen to that, I can hear God. It happens that the miracle of the mundane, right? 
My life is a miracle. The fact that we're here today is a miracle. The fact that my heart is beating and that tells me that my soul is still in my body, it's a miracle. It's a gift. It's a blessing. That's where I start. I start with that, that inner part of my life, which is from God. The, the gift of life itself is sacred. Your life is sacred. My life is sacred. That's God's gift to us. It's His image. It's not ours. I didn't do anything. I didn't make this up. <laughs> Me, right? You didn't make you, you, right? It's God's gift to us. But it starts today, it starts with my neighbor, it starts with my prayer, it starts with my inner life. These are the things that I need to look at. And if it doesn't start today, then I don't know when it'll start, you know? So then the check of the conscience is to kind of like, you know, listen to these other sources, be here in church, when you're reading the book, because they kind of start telling you the same thing. Yeah, there'll be a unison of voice, and the gospel always has to be the main epicenter of that phenomenon. That's called scruples, where it's like it starts to kind of attack you in such a way that it's almost like OCD. We have to be careful with that, you know? You know, it always has to be willing to submit. I remember like the, um, the Desert Fathers, they always talk about the story about people who have the gift of prayer. And how do they know, like how can they confirm if that is actually like a real gift from God? Like that they've reached a level of sanctity or some kind of amount of holiness. They always go out into the desert, the abbot or one of the fathers goes out. And he comes in and he knocks on the door. And the door opens. He says, Father, you're the worst person in the world. Get back to the monastery right now and get to work. And if the monk says, okay, may it be blessed. I'll get my stuff. So oh, you can stay. <laughs> you can stay. If he says, hey, I'm a good guy. You don't know I'm out here praying for you all. And what a terrible person you are. And blah. He's like, all right, this guy's deluded. And he's definitely not a spiritual man. He's like, oh. Go, go back to the monastery and, and, and start again, you know. So it's, it, starts with, it starts with the neighbor. It starts, Christ is in the other. doesn't matter who, who it is. doesn't matter who it is. If you can't see it in the least, then you're not going to see it in the greatest. If I can't see it in, in the bum, I'm not going to see it in the bishop. Right? I was like, who's that bishop? Huh? Who's that guy? Thinks he's wearing a nice hat. It's like, you missed the point. It's not about the person. It's about the position. You know? It's not a cult. You know, we're not into personality worship. We're into the Lord. Christ is the epicenter of it all. Question. What's the second benchmark? Second benchmark. Hmm, let me tie my shoe real quick. <laughs> second benchmark is when other people's opinions and um, pressures cease to act on us. And we just live according to the gospel and there's no sense of like compulsion from others based on our own selfishness or on our own kind of weird sense of like obligation. It's just gospel-centered and Christ-centered. And that's a very high place to be. But you see it when uh, saints are persecuted, that they're kind of liberated from that tyranny of kind of the, the good opinion of the world. And it's funny because you look at the Beatitudes. Beatitudes are this, this ladder, you know, forgive me for saying it, the stairway to heaven. It's funny, there's an there's a interesting saying. It says, even rock musicians know that there's a highway to hell and a stairway to heaven. <laughs> you know? But that stairway to heaven is the Beatitudes, and it shows you just how to do spiritual life. The first one is poverty of spirit. That basically, I can't do it. That God has to be the greater part of my life. And I always have to have God as my reference point. Even just bringing in the thought of God into our lives is a beginning. Like, oh, I remembered God. There is a God, and I'm not it. It's like, that's a start, right? 
Um, and then that poverty of spirit is kind of what epitomizes the gospel because it gives us that sense that I can look to the Lord and I don't have to rely on myself. Then it goes up the ladder and the very last one of the Beatitudes is what? Blessed are you when all, when all men shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. I don't know about you, but have you ever been persecuted before? I have. It's terrible. And I really wasn't, I didn't, you know, I didn't really do anything that bad except be me. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't having an exceptionally bad day or anything like that. It just, that was the position I was in. That was the situation as it was. It's mind-bending. It is mind, it's weird. He's like, I don't think I really, you know, and other people around you like, did I do something? You know, it's like, no. Uh, but you get it. Why? Because it, it, it liberates you from that last tyranny of kind of the world, which is that sense of like, I need the good opinion of other people in order to serve God, or I need a pat on the back, or whatever. It's based in pride and vainglory, but it's real freedom, you know? But it's the last of the last. You know, it's the last step before you get into heaven, and that's why I see, you know, Christ himself was persecuted, the saints are persecuted, and to some degree we'll also suffer some, a little bit of persecution ourselves by trying to follow the gospel, whether from family members or whatever, and it's not like a persecution complex, it's just how to be Christian in that moment, to say okay, and to pray. You know, there's always, I have a, a sermon that I give uh, once in a blue moon, it's called BDGP. BDGP. This is the gospel in, in short uh mnemonic form, you know, just a little kind of thing to remind us what the gospel is. The gospel is to bless, to do good, and to pray. That's all we've been asked to do for people. We don't have to fix them. All we have to do is pray for them and love them. I don't have to fix you. And that's part of that thing of like wanting to control even, like a lot of times in the monastery people are like, hey, that guy's not, that guy's not doing the right thing. He should be good. I was like, I know. Like, but how are you kind of, you know, telling this guy about what he should be doing? How's that going to help him? Like, of course he wants to do the good and the right thing. People in the church do that all the time, right? She's not doing the right thing over there. Why don't you go tell her, Father, that she's doing the wrong thing? It's like, no. I'm not going to tell her she's doing the wrong thing. I mean, it's like, I'll pray. And maybe, like, if the time is, like, opportune or the right time, maybe I'll say something, but probably not. Right? For every ten things you think, say one. You know, otherwise, you know, you won't have many friends. You know, it's like that's in the monastery. It's like I don't say a lot, and everybody says, "Oh, he's a pretty good guy." <laughs> you know, maybe that's to my fault. Like I don't know, but I'd rather err on the side of caution because otherwise, you oppress people. You know, um, but if you can bless people when they're not nice, if you can be, if you can do good for them when they don't do good for you, if you can pray for them when they don't like you then you're a Christian. That's where the rubber meets the road. It's like, what is the uncreated light? St. Sophronius says it's the love of enemies. When we love our enemies, and we say, I know it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a difficulty, because you say, let's say somebody at work is mistreating you and being just terrible to you, right? If you can, inside, not react, and say, I can't believe that person, blah, blah, blah. If you can table that, you can start to pray for them, say the Jesus prayer for them. It's the easiest way to do it. Say the Jesus prayer for that person. If I can do that in that moment and, and, and in some kind of auth mildly authentic way and, and beg God to help me to do it, that is actually the light of Tabor in your own heart that enables you to do that and makes you a real Christian and not just kind of a fair-weathered fair Christian. 
you know? When somebody mistreats me, that's the litmus test or the benchmark of actually how spiritual I am. There's one story in the Desert Fathers that's wonderful. They said, um, a man's daughter was demon-possessed. He kept begging this monk, please, you know, he's selling baskets at the market, please come and heal my daughter. He says, I can't do that. I'm just, you know, I'm not, I'm not an exorcist. You know, he said, no, I know you're a holy man. You've got to come help my daughter. So after a while, he says, you know, somehow there was like some pious ruse, they call it. You know, there's always a pious ruse. And he got the guy to come by his house to pick up the money for the basket that he bought, right? He bought, got a basket, come to my house and pick up the money. And so he knocked on the door, the monk did, the door opens up, and there's the demon-possessed daughter. And the demon-possessed daughter rears back her hand and clocks him right in the face with a big right hand. And the monk, he just looks at her and he turns the other cheek like this. And the, the daughter falls down on the ground and the demon leaves her. <laughs> because that's the power of the gospel. Because he had no reactivity inside. He was just like, okay. And that okay, as it were, was the exorcism for that lady. And she was freed in that moment. But that's the power of the gospel. And so being able to actually do that is... It's, it makes it so that evil doesn't proliferate and that by thinking evil, I don't become evil. It makes it so that I'm actually good no matter what. doesn't matter how you're doing. I can be who I am and have integrity in that. So it's time for a break. I think it's time. All right. And, and just uh, St. Basil's in Afra, we pray, make good the evil by yeah. thy benevolence. Yeah, make the evil right. good. Yeah. Yeah.